Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Councilmember Hines is looking to provide funding for community benefiting projects by Desiree Matherin. And here's what transportation advocates want to see from the mayor's budget by Rebecca Tauber. From Westward, I'll be reading, Westward poll gets similar but angrier responses than CPI on where Denver is headed by Katie Cheshire. And Mayor Johnston announces thousands in event grants to revitalize downtown Denver, also by Katie Cheshire. Now finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Councilmember Hines is looking to provide funding for community benefiting projects by Desiree Matherin. Are you part of a registered neighborhood organization or community group based in Central Denver's District 10? Well, Councilmember Chris Hines may have some funding available to help throw that block party, fix that newsletter, paint a crosswalk, or clean up some trash. Hines is implementing a community benefit fund in the district that will provide financial support to community-based groups. Through the program, which comes out of District 10's budget, groups can apply for up to $2,500 that will go toward community benefiting projects such as neighborhood beautification and safety concerns, increasing civic engagement, or cultivating community building. The program is similar to council member Paul Cashman's District 6 Community Benefit Fund, which he started last year. A major difference is that Cashman's program is focused on RNOs. We specifically didn't say RNOs on purpose because while registered neighborhood organizations are in ordinance, that isn't the only way we get outreach from the community, Hines said. Homeowners associations will reach out. Some people take it upon themselves to circulate petitions, as an example. Hines said the program is something he's wanted to implement for quite some time, but for budgetary reasons was unable to. Now, with the resources available and with the success shown in Cashman's district, Hines is ready to start doling out the cash reasonably. He added that the goal of the program is to essentially provide gap funding to these groups. We wanted to expand our thought process of what a community benefit would be, Hines said. Some groups have already reached out to Hines. For example, the Golden Triangle Creative District would like funding for litter abatement and graffiti removal. Teller Elementary School also reached out and is looking for funding to paint crosswalks around the school with paw prints to show school pride, but also to increase safety. Hines said the money can go toward important projects like these, especially if it's something the community has been asking for for quite some time. But the money can also go towards newsletter fixes and increasing engagement for meetings. Hines said that in the future, he'd like to continue to provide support to community groups mainly because they are an essential part of the city's connectivity. Some examples include Creative Collective MailChimp or Zoom accounts, providing stipends for volunteers, making sure that groups have a place to meet, and providing food and childcare during meetings. These simple things could be big barriers for some organizations and participants. Funds are limited, 
To qualify, groups must have a W-9 and demonstrate community support. Hines said the application process is straightforward and simple so as not to include any additional barriers to groups. It's due by November 15th and the funding may be issued by December. Here's what transportation advocates want to see from the mayor's budget by Rebecca Tauber. When the Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, DOTI, presented its portion of the proposed 2024 budget to city council, many council members made one thing clear. The city is not doing enough to prevent death on Denver's streets. Council members ask for more money for things like the Safe Routes to School program and speed tables and ask why DOTI has denied requests for specific district items like traffic lights and crosswalks. A letter sent to Mayor Mike Johnston this week asked for $550,000 additional dollars to combat traffic deaths, $5 million for safe routes to school, and $3 million for speed tables citywide. DOTI's advisory board, made up of 19 people appointed by the mayor and city council, echoed calls for more transit funding. In a letter sent to Johnston Tuesday, the board asked for more money to commit the city to Denver Moves Everyone, the latest in a number of city plans imagining future transportation networks for the city. The letter also asks the mayor's office to redirect funds for the Spear Tunnel System, predominantly for cars, toward efforts to improve school transit safety and bike lanes. Board member Alan Cowgill said his two priorities include reducing speed limits and automated enforcement through things like red light cameras. I do think there is some wiggle room within the DOTI budget today to move some things around to better prioritize Vision Zero and multimodal goals, he said. We're looking at record years of traffic deaths, and those are really tragic. The only appropriate number of people dying on our streets is zero. Advocates also want the administration to make a stronger commitment to Vision Zero, a program Denver launched in 2016 with the goal of bringing traffic deaths down to zero by 2030. Since that commitment, city traffic deaths hit a two-decade high of more than 80 fatal crashes in 2021 and 2022. We are concerned that this plan is significantly underfunded based on the budget for this year, the board wrote in its letter. Advocates suggested reallocating increased money for paving towards Vision Zero efforts and adding $50,000 for signage reducing the speed limit on major streets with high levels of injuries. We need to find a better way to fund it because right now we are not meeting those Vision Zero goals, not even getting close to them right now, Calgill said. I do think it needs to be a priority. Board members also want the city to spend $1 million on 10 red light cameras around the city. Recently, the state expanded the use of speed cameras, and Aurora began its own pilot program in August. Proponents of speed cameras say they promote traffic safety while decreasing police interactions and racial profiling, but some studies show camera technology can have its own racial biases. With the delay of Denver's sidewalk repair program, the DOTI Advisory Board also wants an additional $1 million for sidewalk repairs. In 2022, voters approved an ambitious plan to levy fees on property owners to fix sidewalks citywide. But the rollout of that program has been delayed six months to the summer of 2024, 
over, over concerns about inequitable fees. Yet, with new fees on the horizon, it's possible property owners will delay paying for their own sidewalk repairs in the short term. The letter from advocates asks the city to put up $1 million for repairs in the meantime. Other suggestions include levying fees on construction that disrupts public infrastructure like crosswalks and using that money to restore pedestrian infrastructure. The advisory board also wants the city to focus on enforcing parking violations that block bike lanes and sidewalks and put $20,000 into a pilot snow removal program on neighborhood bikeways. The letter also praises some parts of the proposed 2024 budget, like money for the Colfax Bus Rapid Transit Line and the expansion of the Microtransit Connector Program to West Denver. It's still unclear how many requests from city council members, DOTI, or other staff will make it into Johnston's budget. The mayor has until Monday to respond to requests and release his final budget. Then, council members can propose and vote on amendments, while the public can give comment on October 23rd. City Council must pass a final budget by November 13th. The following articles are from Westward. Westward poll gets similar but angrier responses than CPI on where Denver is headed, by Katie Cheshire. Back in September, Westward announced we were taking a poll of our readers to compare with results from the newly formed Colorado Polling Institute, which released its first survey of Denver's likely 2024 election voters in August. Well, the results are in. CPI respondents depicted a city divided over whether it's headed in the right direction, while also identifying homelessness and housing affordability as top issues for voters. Westward's results largely matched up with their sentiment, though our readers say homelessness, crime, and public safety are the city's top issues, while housing affordability comes in next. Westward's readers also seem to be more dissatisfied than those surveyed by the CPI, giving lower approval ratings to every entity identified in the survey. Additionally, when compared to the CPI's finding that 44% of people think Denver is currently on the right track, while another 44% think it's heading in the wrong direction, Westward's readers are less optimistic. Of the more than 300 people reached, 38% said the Miles High City is currently on the right track, and 56.1% said it's headed the wrong way. We're pleased our Denver poll continues to draw attention to many of the issues facing Colorado's capital city, and we hope to provide a similar spark with our first statewide poll later this year, says Chris Hubbard, senior advisor with the CPI, of Westward's survey. The CPI reached just over 400 people with its inaugural poll, which Brent Buchanan, a pollster with Signal, one of the two organizations to oversee the questionnaire, said is a solid number during a media briefing on September 8th. 400 is a really good sample for the size of the city, he noted, if you do a statewide survey, a 600 sample size is accurate. Our method wasn't as scientific as the one used by CPI, which was founded earlier this year by social entrepreneur and investor David Carlson with the goal of providing accurate and publicly accessible information about issues in the state. Westward just made a Google form using the CPI questions and didn't collect any demographic information, since Google Forms just isn't secure enough for that. 
This means people could have sneakily completed the form multiple times and we'd be none the wiser. Still, Westward hopes the results offer another look at where Denver's residents stand in a time of transition. It's an interesting time for Denver, Kevin Ingham, a pollster with Aspect Strategic, the other polling entity used by the CPI, told Westward in September. The city's still recovering from pandemic-induced challenges. Denver has its first new mayor in 12 years. Half the city council members are new. The CPI asked voters for their opinions on the city council, the Denver Police Department, the Regional Transportation District, and Denver International Airport. All achieved positive positive favorability. In Westward's poll, however, only DIA came out in the positive. City Council, meanwhile, is considered unfavorable by 52.6% of those surveyed, while the DPD is considered unfavorable by 51.6%. RTD got the worst results, with 55.8% of respondents rating it unfavorably. Despite seemingly endless complaints about DIA, 59% of westward respondents rated it favorably. In the CPI poll, 71.1% did so, showing that our respondents were consistently more unhappy, even on the items they're happy with. When it comes to DIA, we're asking people just, how do you feel about your airport? Ingham offered on DIA's high ranking in September. It's not specific things about how it operates or how people feel about the Grand Hall construction or anything like that. As far as Denver Mayor Mike Johnston is concerned, respondents tracked with the CPI survey, with 39.7% ranking him favorably, 24.2% with no opinion, and 32.5% describing him as unfavorable. In the CPI poll, 46% ranked him favorably, 28.3% had no opinion, and 22.2% ranked him unfavorably. Johnston's homelessness plan had many respondents feeling like they didn't know enough to give an opinion in August, when the CPI conducted its survey and the plan was newer. Of those who replied to Westward, only 14.5% said they didn't know enough to approve or disapprove. Instead, 44.2% approve and 38.4% disapprove. Westward's readers are even more gung-ho on encampment sweeps than the CPI respondents. The CPI survey found 65% of people in support. Westward recorded 73.9%. One of the closest results came on the financial strain that Denver's current housing situation causes, with 64.2% of Westward's respondents saying it has some or significant strain on their budgets, and 65% telling CPI the same. One of Johnston's other priorities since taking office has been revitalizing downtown Denver, as seen with the recent announcement of grants designed to bring events to the area. What we know is that downtown Denver is the economic hub of the city of Denver, Johnston said at an October 10th press conference. We know as downtown Denver succeeds in its economic and social recovery, So goes the rest of the city and the rest of the region. And so we're very committed to making sure downtown Denver is a place that feels vibrant and safe and welcoming to residents, to workers, to visitors all the time. Both the CPI and Westward found in each of the polls that people aren't optimistic about the recovery of the city center, though they report that a majority of people feel safe in the Mile High City. 
Another result that falls in line with, C with the CPI survey is the feeling about reducing the time city officials can spend in office from three consecutive terms to two. In Westward's survey, 64.8% of people support that idea, and 63% of the CPI respondents do too. Westward readers are slightly more jazzed about the concept of ranked choice voting, with 53.6% saying they support the system, compared to the CPI's 48% finding. While many of the results between the two surveys had a similar outcome, the CPI encourages people to pay attention to those with slightly more stringent methods than westwards, when possible. A scientific approach to polling is the best way to gather information that is reflective of the diversity, be it racial and ethnic, socioeconomic or geographic, of voters in Denver and Colorado, and we hope people continue to find value in our work, Hubbard concludes. Mayor Johnston announces thousands in event grants to revitalize downtown Denver by Katie Cheshire. On Monday, October 9th, Mayor Mike Johnston announced the first program devoted to his administration's goal of revitalizing downtown Denver, a grant initiative to help subsidize community events in the city center. Johnston and Downtown Denver Partnership CEO Courtney Garrett lifted the curtain on the city's new Dynamic Downtown Denver Grant Program at a press conference, revealing that it will dole out more than $350,000. This can include everything from a local community organization that wants to come and do Shakespeare in a parking lot in downtown Denver, Johnson said. This can include the Montbello drumline coming down to visit for an afternoon. Johnston even floated a pickleball tournament as an option, among other creative ideas. When you think about some of your favorite memories in downtown Denver, they're often going to be around some wonderful event that you attended, Johnston explained. What we were looking at was not to say, let's have a top-down city-run program, but to say, let's actually cultivate the creativity, the innovation, the invention, the artistry that already exists in the community. Grants will range from $500 to $25,000. According to Johnston and Garrett, Downtown Denver is at a critical time as it continues to recover from the pandemic. 13 new businesses and 1,300 new residents have been added to the core city so far this year, they said. We are incredibly optimistic, Garrett said. Recovery takes strong vision and leadership, and we see that leadership here in Denver as our community, our businesses, and our partners at the city come together. We know that there's no better way to bring our community together to re-energize downtown and reinstall a collective love for downtown than through music, through arts, culture, and celebration. Garrett offered some examples of events that could work, including a single musician or artist putting on a show or community installation or restaurants coming together to host music series on their patios. I could envision resident groups like registered neighborhood organizations, for example, doing pop-up markets, she said, noting that the goal is simply to provide cool experiences for the community. One Denver, the organization dedicated to reviving Denver's nighttime economy, plans to apply for a few grants, including one for a New Year's Eve celebration that's open to families instead of just partiers, according to the group's executive director, Stephen Brackett. Applicants don't have to propose new concepts, 
I think it could definitely be open to existing events, Garrett told Westward. Let's say there's something taking place outside of the city center, but they want to do an activation that helps promote their event in downtown. As the partnership reviews grant applications, it will prioritize events in areas where foot traffic still hasn't fully rebounded since the 2020 pandemic and shutdowns. Otherwise, there aren't too many restrictions. Garrett and Johnston stressed that the process is very open-ended, with all types of events potentially qualifying as long as they work toward showcasing downtown Denver. Events and activations should be innovative and inclusive and should take place in highly visible, publicly accessible areas in downtown, outdoors, and provide the public with free, unique, and engaging experiences, Garrett said at the press conference, noting that the focus is on fun. We know that sometimes government programs can feel complicated and slow-moving and hard to navigate, Johnson acknowledged. What we want is the opposite. We want something that is easy to access for creators, innovators, artists all around the city who have their own passion. With the city involved, certain processes, such as permitting, should be easier. Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, which oversees permitting, is a partner in the program, as is Denver Arts and Venues. Successful applicants will also benefit from expertise from her organization, noted Garrett. The Downtown Denver Partnership is very big on programming and activation, she said. We'll certainly have those resources available to help mentor community groups, individuals, whomever, to help understand exactly how you make these things work. Applications will open on October 16th, at thisismydenver.com slash grants. The partnership will review applications on a rolling basis with plans for a weeks-long turnover from application to acceptance for those who qualify. What we know is that downtown Denver is the economic hub of the city of Denver, Johnston said. It's also the economic hub of the region. We know as downtown Denver succeeds in its economic and social recovery, So goes the rest of the city and the rest of the region. And so we're very committed to making sure downtown Denver is a place that feels vibrant and safe and welcoming to residents, to workers, to visitors all the time. This is just the first of many strategies to further that vision, the mayor promised. We'll look at other ways to make it easier for businesses that are currently downtown to be able to activate their public spaces and sidewalks, he said. We'll look at ways that we can help small businesses start up to be able to get access to a city that might have thought they would never have been able to access before. This is not the end, but the beginning of what we see as a comprehensive, complete approach. Triangle Bar patrons scoff at encampment claims as business booms during weekend parties by Benito El Kelty. It's been a tough year for downtown Denver businesses like Woods Boss Brewing Company and the Triangle Bar, which are located about a block away from each other. Both have owners who claim that revenues have tanked because of nearby homeless encampments. But it certainly didn't look that way over the weekend. Woods Boss, a brewery and bar at 2210 California Street, held its annual block party on Saturday, October 7th, and people flocked to the Triangle, at 2036 Broadway on Sunday, October 8th, for its farewell beer bust after the owners decided to close indefinitely last week. Both events went off without a hitch, 
which warrants the question, are the homeless encampments really the issue? Patrons who spoke to Westward on Sunday scoffed at that notion, saying it's a bullshit excuse. It's kind of a cop-out, said Triangle frequenter Paul Anderson. Yeah, homelessness is an issue, but it's a cop-out. Phil Thomas, another longtime patron, said, We didn't come that often, but that was never a deciding factor. It was an issue to come and deal with here. It's not like they don't exist, but we go to places on Colfax all the time, and it never bothers us there either. Anderson told Westward he used to go to the original Triangle Bar that opened in the 1970s, and although he liked the new version that opened in 2017, it just didn't have the same vibe. But Denver's homelessness crisis has nothing to do with it, he insisted. The party disappeared, Anderson asserted. There's not a lot of reason to come down here anymore. According to patrons and even some of the owners themselves, the reason downtown businesses like the Triangle Bar are declining and having to close up shop also has a lot to do with the city's after-work and nightlife scene diminishing after the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't want you to take away from this conversation that the homeless encampments are ruining the area. That's not the case entirely, said Wood's boss co-owner Chad Moore during the Saturday block party. That is a significant impact to this area and what people's going ongoing perceptions are. There's also the impacts of people not coming back to their workplace downtown. In Moore's eyes, Denver is suffering significantly from the homelessness situation. However, he admits that his business is not doing well to begin with and that the encampments just make things worse. Restaurants, bars, and retail, their problems are huge because there's a contingent of folks who aren't coming downtown to come to work, he said. When there are homeless encampments within a block radius of this building, our numbers drop overnight. It would have been hard for first-timers to know that business was suffering this past weekend as hundreds of people packed the triangle for its goodbye bash and the area outside Wood's boss for the block party. Triangle co-owner Scott Coors had announced on October 5th that he was closing the iconic LGBTQ plus venue immediately and indefinitely after a survey of customers found that homeless encampments were causing residents to stay away. The results came in while a triangle was also suffering from low revenues. After closing in the late 2000s, several owners resurrected the Triangle Bar in 2017 and had success in the first few years. But since COVID, the bar hasn't been able to recover, and revenues have trended downward much faster this year as, home, as more homeless encampments have sprung up around the block, Coors says. In response to critics who believe he's using the homeless crisis as a scapegoat, Coors says that he stands behind the survey his management team conducted and insists that nearby encampments are to blame, saying safety is the bar's top concern. The encampments are completely out of control, Coors says. Our customers told us one of the main reasons why they aren't coming anymore is concerns over walking through the encampments. While it would have been hard to notice a decline in business on Sunday, Coors also points to the fact that a city sweep did just take place in the area two weeks earlier. Both the Triangle and the Woods Boss events went on for several hours. At any given moment during the Woods Boss party, about 150 people could be seen inside the gates dancing to live rock, perusing merchandise under tents, buying tacos from a food truck, or sitting inside Woods Boss and the neighboring businesses laughing with friends.
Triangle Bar hosted hundreds of patrons as well. It's going great, Coors said during the bash. A lot of people showed up, and that's great. Coors hasn't been alone in his assessment of the downtown area and his business. Other guests told Westward over the weekend that they believed homeless encampments were drastically affecting things. Tyler Noble, a longtime patron, pointed out how there were even tents set across the street from the triangle as the party was going on. I've not been down here in a long time, Noble said. I'm understanding and compassionate about our homeless problem. But this is the other side of the real impact. It's impacting our downtown and our business. Bruce Ferguson, who used to come once or twice a week to the Triangle Bar, said he stopped after the pandemic because he came, became more concerned with homelessness and safety. I parked across the street, and I parked next to tents, and they go, Hey, I used to park in a pay lot, and people would look into my car, he told Westward. I don't need a problem when I come out. I don't want to engage with potential violence. Coors hasn't been the only business owner in the area that has complained and tried to urge the city to come up with solutions. He's teamed up with Danny Newman from the Mercury Cafe, Mark Burzins from the British Bulldog, and the owners of Woods Boss, among others. Moore and fellow Woods Boss owner Jordan Fink have been throwing annual parties in the tw- on the 2200 block of California Street since the business first opened in 2017. Coors, Fink, and Moore all acknowledged that the sweep that happened in their area on September 27th was a welcome relief. Fink, however, admits that it also created conflicted feelings for himself and Moore. We're humans, and we recognize that they are humans, he said Saturday. But at the same time, there is the aspect of, thank God, there's been a firewall around us for two months, and it's significantly impacted our business and our safety. According to Moore, whenever homeless individuals set up shop on 22nd, California, Stout, any visual area here, our sales plummet. Fink adds that the hit can be as sharp as 50% drops in sales when that happens. While guests at the Woods Boss Block Party were aware that encampments are an issue in the area, several said they had good or fantastic experiences on Saturday. It's nice, said Kyle Freeman. I like that it's in October now. It used to be before the Great American Beer Festival in the summer. The weather's nice. I'm enjoying it. Freeman, who also works in the area, acknowledged homelessness is an issue around here, and I think people would like to ignore it. But you have to pay attention to it to know what's going on in your city. Madison Francis, who is also at the Woods Boss Block Party, told Westward, Homelessness is an issue, and it's kind of dystopian to have these high-rises right across the street. I'm definitely sympathetic and in full support of finding them proper housing, adding, So far, my night has been fantastic. Absolutely. That hasn't been an issue tonight. When Fink and Moore threw their first block party back in 2017, they highlighted the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless as the charity that was getting proceeds from the event. Likewise, Coors says that he's given generously to groups that support the homeless in Denver. Those numbers that we get to donate back to the community are dropping because we're just trying to stay alive, Moore said. That's frustrating. Moore and Fink mentioned that they had to double their closing staff to make sure no one was alone at night after some complained of being threatened by homeless people in the area. 
Cars have also allegedly been broken into, and a storefront window was smashed by a rock. I wouldn't let my wife park across the street, from Wood's boss, when there were encampments, said Eisler, one of Saturday's guests and a close friend of Fink and Moore's. I didn't want her to go over there, because the homeless will harass you, and then I heard they can get violent, so I only let her come here with me. Eisler, who has been working in an office near Union Station on Wuweta Street, told Westward that during the past few years, homeless encampments migrated from where he works to, to the area near Woods Boss in the Triangle. Finn talked about how there was a six-block wall of homeless creating a physical barrier for people in the downtown area that used to walk over to us all the time. For a while, he said, there was tons of traffic, and then we saw that take a hard dive. To be frank, if a homeless encampment set up shop around these blocks again and sat there for over a month, we would be on the cusp, Moore charged. I don't know if we would make it. According to Fink, area business owners sat down with a lawyer last week to consider suing the city of Denver for negligence for not enforcing its codes and letting businesses take the hit. The issue is that there are certain neighborhoods where it certainly seems like the city has less concern about moving folks quickly, this being one of the neighborhoods where it doesn't seem to be high on their priority list, he said. We're expendable. The block in front of Wood's Boss is part of a permanent posted cleanup area, which means that the city is supposed to regularly clear the area of encampments. For Fink and Moore, what they want to see is cooperation between businesses, the city of Denver, and the homeless. We need to figure out ways to generate the positive buzz that's out there, Moore suggested. Go talk to any of the customers who come here frequently, and they'll tell you it's a great place. If we can't all work together, then it's not going to work. We have to work together and figure it out. We can't just shut out and say, the area's too tough, we're not going to do a block party. That's why we're throwing a block party, Fink concluded, to say, hey, we're still here. George Morrison Sr. to be inducted into Colorado Music Hall of Fame by Teague Bolin. Denver's godfather of jazz is finally getting his due and the spot his legacy deserves from Colorado Music Hall of Fame. On Tuesday, October 17th, George Morrison Sr. will be inducted into the hall in a ceremony at the city park now named for him at 1600 Martin Luther King Boulevard. The park, with its monumental half-violin erected in honor of the jazz-era great, was recently updated through a community grant from Amazon under the oversight of the Denver Park Trust and a committee of Whittier community members led by Dr. Dr. Awan Aturi. At the October 16th Denver City Council meeting, member Daryl Watson will introduce a proclamation highlighting George Morrison Sr.'s legacy and the upcoming induction. Watson will also speak at that event. Mr. Morrison Sr. was an extraordinary man, says Carlos Lando, former general manager and longtime on-air host at Denver Jazz Station KUVO and a Colorado Music Hall of Fame board member will also talk at the induction. A musician, a composer, a civil rights pioneer, and a five-points entrepreneur. Because he chose to remain in Denver, he was largely underappreciated and forgotten on a national level, even though he was an international star during the golden age of jazz. 
That was back in the days when Five Points was known as the Harlem of the West and echoed with the sounds of jazz music from not just George Morrison, a violin virtuoso and bandleader, but other legends like Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Jelly Roll Morton, and Bill Bojangles Robinson. He played for kings and queens and played with Duke and the Count, Lando says of Morrison. Morrison met with so much success that he set out to build a house on East 26th Street in Gilpin in the Whittier neighborhood in 1923. The community's reaction was a racist bombing attack, according to Historic Denver, and a burning cross on what was meant to be a lush front yard facing Manuel High School. The local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan dismantled the foundation of the home in the dark of night nearly as fast as it could be put up in the bright light of day. But Morrison was used to persevering in the face of struggle. Born in 1891 in Fayette, Missouri, it's said that his first violin was self-made with a corn stalk, a piece of wood, and some string. In 1900, his musical family moved to Boulder, where he played for fraternities and sororities at the University of Colorado. He and his brothers would also play the mining camps in the mountains to the west and for hundreds of Jewish weddings in Denver. He moved there in 1911 when he married his wife, Willa May, but he still dreamed of playing classical violin and eventually moved to Chicago to receive classical training from the Columbia Conservatory of Music. Even with such credentials, no orchestras or symphonies of the day would hire black musicians. Morrison's yearning to make music wouldn't be denied. He formed an 11-piece band that recorded with Columbia Records, producing a hit foxtrot called I Know Why in 1920, and playing regularly at the Carlton Terrace Supper Club, a Tony dance hall at the corner of Broadway and 100th Street in New York City. That same year, Morrison toured Europe and played a command performance in London for King George and Queen Mary. Morrison returned to Denver and signed with the Pontages Circuit not long after, booking performances at major cities throughout the West. A second black ensemble, the Melody Hounds, included East High School graduate and singer Hattie McDaniel, some 15 years before her, her historic Oscar-winning turn in Gone with the Wind. For many years, Morrison and Morrison's Jazz Orchestra enjoyed a long-term residency at the Albany Hotel, which stood with grand style for nearly a century at 17th and Stout Streets. Once completed, Morrison's house on Gilpin served as a safe haven for black performers traveling through Denver, who were barred from most hotels because of the color of their skin. And it wasn't only visiting big-name musicians who enjoyed the hospitality of Morrison's home. Scores of aspiring musicians also came, taking lessons from Morrison, sometimes free of charge. Morrison was instrumental in much of Denver's musical past, including the founding of Musicians Local 623, an important union for black performers. He also volunteered as a music teacher for Denver Public Schools, an act of charity and support for public education that doubtlessly inspired his son, George Morrison Jr., to follow in his footsteps and break barriers of his own in Denver academic history. As a nod to Morrison Sr.'s dedication to education, the Denver South High School Jazz Band will perform at the induction ceremony. Despite all his success, 
Morrison never achieved his dream of playing with a professional symphony orchestra. The first African-American to play with the Colorado Symphony was Charles Charlie Burrell, another member of the hall who just turned 103. Burrell played with Morrison and recalls Sunday concerts in Golden, complete with dancing and good barbecue, where the two legendary musicians and band would perform. He was a real gift, says Burrell, a real nice guy. He treated people well, and he paid well, too. He brought jazz to Denver. Before him, there was no jazz, period. He was the first one, God bless him. George Morrison Sr. will be inducted into Colorado Music Hall of Fame at his namesake park, 1600 Martin Luther King Boulevard, at 5 p.m. Tuesday, October 17th. Admission is free. The Woman in Black Brings Bone-Chilling Scares to Wheat Ridge Theatre Company by Tony Tresca. In the eerie embrace of October, The Woman in Black has found a haunting home on Wheat Ridge Theatre Company's intimate thrust stage. With audiences encircling the actors on three sides, the theatrical experience has audiences plunging into a realm where the boundaries between fiction and reality blur. The theater lends itself to horror because you get so connected with everyone in the room and experience this horror together as a helpless bystander, says costume designer Tori Green. You're put in this position where you can't stop anything that's happening. If you don't want to see it, you literally have to get up to leave, and most people don't want to bring that kind of social attention to themselves. If you love Goosebumps, The Twilight Zone, or Black Mirror, then you should come out to the theater because The Woman in the Black is the show for you. The macabre masterpiece is based on Susan Hill's 1983 novel of the same name and adapted by Stephen Malatrot for the stage in 1987. The Woman in Black, which is the second longest-running non-musical play to ever run in London's West End, tells the story of junior lawyer Arthur, Arthur Kipps as he travels through perilous terrain to the sleepy market town of Crithen Gifford. His purpose? To attend the funeral of Mrs. Alice Drablow, a deceased client whose life holds ominous secrets. Little does he know that his presence will unveil the horrifying truth of the woman in black, a specter that has haunted the town and its inhabitants for generations. According to executive producer Maru Garcia, the Woman in Black is a classic horror story that is very attractive to audiences in October. Even though she is not a big fan of horror and worries that this play will be too frightening for her to attend, she is happy to have found artists on board who are eager to capitalize on the intimacy of the space to create an all-encompassing horror experience. Artists like Jameis Wilkes, who designed and constructed the show's set. He's a connoisseur of horror and co-chair of the Horror Writers Association's Colorado chapter. I am very familiar with the original novel, quite like the 1989 TV movie, and I love the recent film with Daniel Radcliffe, even though it got middling reviews, Wilkes says. And I might be biased, because I have a theater background, but I think the best presentation of The women, Woman in Black is on stage. It takes the story you know, but tells the narratology differently. Since it's much more of a past tense type tale, it allows Arthur to really reflect on the haunting. Ronan Viard, who plays young Arthur Kipps, 
knew absolutely nothing about the story. I never saw any movies, and I don't like horror movies. If others don't like horror, they should be afraid, because this play is really spooky. My focus as an actor is not trying to be scared or play up the horror. This is a very deep story about one person's very intense journey. So I'm trying my best to be as sincere as I can and honor the reality of what this guy's going through, he continues. The show relies a lot on the actors, especially the two men, because the third actor is already on the other side, whilst we're still in the living world trying to survive. My goal is to make the audience believe I'm scared shitless, because it is really scary. Hopefully, they'll leave with a delicious feeling of unease. Selena A. Namoff, who created the props for The Woman in Black at the Fountain Hills Theater Company in Arizona 20 years ago, will direct the play in Wheat Ridge. Since working on the production two decades ago, the play has tantalized Namoff, who thought it would be perfect for the company's stage. It's such a great show for this size of theater, and perfect for October, she says. A lot of theater's shows don't work because they make the ghost too obvious. Directors want the audience to see the ghost, but we're not going to let you know for sure every time she's on stage. There's a couple of times where the audience is going to go, did I just see the ghost? We're going to play psychological tricks on the audience. The audience should leave worried that they are haunted and bring this ghost home to their family. There are accidental jump scares. That cannot be helped. But there's no splash zone for blood. It's just not that kind of show. The play's creative team, which also includes co-stage manager and board operator Kevin Flomberg-Rollins, co-stage manager and dramaturg Cena Hirsch, light designer Devin Meck, props manager Melanie Maynard, and sound designer Rick Reed, is diligently working to subtly increase the play's suspense. As far as leaning into horror, most of the time, and I learned this from Hitchcock, you just have to suggest something and then let someone's imagination run with that, Wilkes shared. I've seen a lot of different productions of The Women in Black on stage, and the most effective ones really nail the technical elements. I have to make sure I'm not doing anything on stage that's going to blow up the mood. It's just a suggestion of what's there and nodding to the spooky elements. It's thought-provoking because it plays on the sense of personal trauma, adds Hirsch, who portrays the titular woman in black in addition to her technical duties. There are elements of this play that touch me as a mother and a daughter. If you just listen to the script and embrace the experience, you're going to get a lot out of this macabre experience. It's scary, but it's not disgusting. You aren't seeing Saw. Patrick Brownson, an actor navigating the complexities of playing old Arthur Kipps, as well as every other character in the show, sees the play as a therapeutic release. It's not just about horror to me. The main theme of this play is the power of storytelling and how powerful it is to share your story with an audience, he says. Stories affect the person telling the story as much as it does the audience receiving it, because this is very much about the character using this story to purge himself of his past. All his negative emotions, all of these horrible feelings and horrible things that happened to him 20 to 30 years later, he still cannot get over it. So this is a therapy session for him. The woman in black transcends the boundaries of traditional horror, 
offering more than jump scares and fleeting frights. This production, with its seasoned cast and dedicated crew, epitomizes the power of theater to evoke emotions and provoke thoughts. It truly is the ultimate seasonal event, Wilkes touts. It's perfect for the person who doesn't want to go on an interactive haunted house to be chased by some stupid-ass zombie with a chainsaw, or if you want to do something other than going to the movie theater. This is the way horror was meant to be experienced. The Woman in Black runs Friday, October 13th through Sunday, October 29th. Wheat Ridge Theater Company, 5455 West 38th Avenue, Unit J, Wheat Ridge. Get tickets at wheatridgetheater.com. Audacious Immersive's The Haunting of Your House Teaches How to Be a Ghost by Tony Tresca. With Halloween right around the corner, Audacious Immersive is getting in the spirit, bringing Denver a spooky afterlife experience that blurs the line between life and death. At the world premiere of The Haunting of Your House, A Practical Guide for How to Survive After You've Died, a ghoulish adventure transforms audience members into ghosts and teaches them the essential haunting skills necessary to make one's presence felt in the mortal realm. The immersive experience offers a curriculum of five carefully chosen lessons that cover everything you need to know to survive after death, from possession and communication with the living to apparition and even ectoplasmic creation. Under the guidance of enigmatic psychopomps, otherworldly members who traverse the chasm between death and the afterlife, participants will learn about the secrets of their past, confront the circumstances of their death, and discover what unfinished business binds them to the earthly realm. It's kind of like a ghost tour, but what elevates it into theater is that we're all experiencing our first moments of death in the afterlife together, says Sarah Stevenson, who designed the set and is portraying a doll named Lucy that attendees will learn how to possess. I would say that it's perfect for anyone who likes Halloween and wants to learn how to haunt their neighbors when they're gone. Where else are you going to get practice like this? Ren Manley, the organization's founding artistic director, wrote and directed The Haunting of Your House, which is Audacious Theater's eighth original Halloween production. It premieres at the First Baptist Church of Denver on Friday, October 13th, and runs through Sunday, October 29th. I actually wanted to do this in 2022, but I got pregnant in 2021, so we had to pivot, Manley says. I'm at that point in the millennial generation where I miss ghost movies, and I always need more spooky things in my life. Audacious tries to do something creepy every year around a different theme. Last year was Project Seven Sins, and the year before that was Lady Killers. This year, I'm looking forward to leaning more into the fun of ghost stories and the supernatural. As a kid, I was terrified, but also fascinated by them, and I've done a million ghost tours, so ghosts are fundamental to my core. The Haunting of Your House really just puts a lot of my personal interests together in one massive project. Manley's inspiration for this ethereal venture sprouted from an illusion called the Pepper's Ghost Effect, which is a technique dating back to the 1800s. The practice, which involves reflective surfaces and clever lighting, allows an out-of-sight person or object to appear as a transparent specter. 
Typically, this effect is used to make an audience believe that a ghost is appearing in front of them. However, Manley had a slightly different idea for how to apply it here. Almost all of my ideas for shows come from one little thing I think would be really cool, says Manley. I knew they used Pepper's ghost on Disney's Haunted Mansion ride, but I didn't realize that it was this effect that had been around for hundreds of years and didn't actually need electricity or anything. It was actually really simple. And then I thought, wouldn't it be cool if the audience could be the ghost? It's a reflection, so the ghost sits in a dark corner. Then there's some sort of clear glass, or in our case, plexiglass. And when you illuminate one side of it, that creates an illusion of this transparent-looking version of yourself, she explains. It's basically just a lighting effect on glass that creates a transparent ghost look on the audience. While in ghost mode, the crowd will navigate the spookified church and learn how to use such apparatuses as the scaramin, the apparate-o-matic, the otherworldly Ouija planchette, the spectral reasoning detector, and more. As they move around the building during the one-and-a-half-hour tour, attendees are encouraged to interact directly with the performers. I really wanted to take the natural magnificence and gravity of the church and integrate it into this other dimension where things look familiar, but the more you go into the space, the more they seem surreal, said Stevenson of the scenic design. One way I'm doing that is through the use of portals, where you enter from one space into another that maximizes all different kinds of effects. At the heart of the experience are the psychopomps, played by six different actors who guide the participants through the afterlife. According to Manley, the actors are sharing the role in a manner similar to the way the Denver Center of Performing Arts cast the role of David Byrne in Theater of the Mind, in which each actor played Byrne while guiding their respective audiences through the installation. Since we have six different people all playing the same character, finding out how to make the same character work for each of these individual actors was a fun process, Manley says. We actually started the whole process with an intensive weekend with the actors before we got going, because Audacious is immersive, which requires a little bit of different style of acting. It seemed like a good idea to lay down ground rules for anyone who hasn't worked with us before, before we bring everyone into rehearsals. Designed for ages 12 and up, this experience beckons to Halloween enthusiasts, the curious and the brave. Manley emphasizes that the show is more about seasonal fun and festivity than outright scares. Participants can actively engage or observe passively, ensuring an inclusive experience tailored to individual comfort levels. The Haunting of Your House, a practical guide for how to survive after you've died. Friday, October 13th through Sunday, October 29th. First Baptist Church of Denver, 1373 Grant Street. Find tickets at audaciousTheater.com. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.